I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio, joined as always by the 42.ies. Murray Kinsella, fresh back from, where were you yesterday? I was in London for the Six Nations launch, a busy day. Uh, got delayed on the plane over, sitting there for two and a half hours in Dublin on the tarmac. There was real heavy fog, so barely made it in time for Ireland stuff, but but got there for a really interesting to hear from Andy Farrell, I guess, as, as the new year launches. They're now over in Portugal, got their training camp. Um, and we're not far off from the start of uh, of the new era. So, yeah, exciting times. Exciting times indeed. And joining us uh, once again is Bernard Jackman. How are you, Bernard? Excellent, thank you. Very Did uh, Farrell and Sexton go from Portugal to London or are they only meeting up today and going? No, the, the majority of players flew from Dublin to Portugal. They flew to London and then yesterday evening they, they caught up with them. So um, I suppose it's a condensed enough period of prep because Farrell decided he was going to give them a couple of days off after the Champions Cup weekend which is different to Joe he would have had them straight into camp prepping and getting through details so um, different approach and it probably points to the fact that we're not going to see a, a huge amount of change in how they play in the first game there's not that that long to actually prepare so um, interesting still to see what little tweaks him and Mike can't make yeah very uh, much looking forward to your thoughts on all of that later on we might get Bernard to pick his team to face Scotland as well if you're game Birch yeah, try. Uh, yeah we will start though with what remains the biggest story in rugby at the moment and it continues to roll on uh, particularly with the publication of this Dyson report that was leaked to Sky News I think it was last yeah, night Sky News. Uh, in relation to Saracens and all of their nefarious activities around the salary cap and subsequent punishments um, if you haven't seen the report or some of the things that have emerged from it uh, over the last sort of 12 or so hours at the time of recording, it basically says in the report that they overspent by £1.1 million and then £906,000 in two of the three seasons examined. And then uh, in the season in between this 2017-2018 season when they got knocked out by Leinster in the quarterfinals of Europe, they were closer to only, I think it was hundred grand, 98 or something along those lines. Um, it's funny, in the report... Uh, the Dyson report, it does say, we accept that the breaches were not deliberate, but in our view, they were reckless, um, which I think is is pretty kind, uh, to be honest. Like, some of the issues to emerge from it were part funding of, of purchases of property with Chris Ashton uh, and the Vunipola brothers. Um, there was a 30 grand payment to Maru Otoji from a hospitality company based at Allianz Park and run by uh, Nigel Ray's daughter, Lucy. Um, so there are loads of strands to this as we kind of knew really um, but the idea that it was sort of somehow accidental or incidental is obviously nonsense yeah well I suppose it depends Saracens say they made these investments with players not thinking that it was breaking a salary cap that it was a, a separate thing that Nigel Ray essentially was being pretty generous with a couple of his players even the Maratoje one they they According to Sky News' report, they paid 1.6 million for a 30% stake in Maratoje's image rights company, and that was based on a valuation by PwC, according to this Sky News report. Um, but Premiership Roby argued that the shares were actually only worth 800k. So there's 800k that you're putting out to Maratoje essentially outside the salary cap, and, and their argument is that it, it's exceeding the salary cap because it is a payment to him to play Roby for Saracens. Uh, it's also interesting that it's it's two different accountancy firms, I guess. 
valuing the same thing and coming up with a very different figure and maybe that leaves in the domain of opinion financial opinion anyway um and it probably points to the two, two sides of it one side sees this as blatant deliberate cheating to pay a player extra outside the salary cap the other sees it as something that's completely different to the salary cap and is essentially helping out your players off the pitch um so it, it it doesn't really clarify or clear the picture for me and in fact it actually kind of muddies it a little bit more um and it kind of questions my conviction about how i suppose how severe the sanctions are with it you mentioned there that the relegation wasn't actually uh, recommended by the report that that's something that we've since come that has since come from the clubs themselves when they um, challenged Saracens to allow a forensic audit of their their books I, I suppose for the last three or four years interesting enough in the Sky News report it says that Saracens issue with that and the reason they accept relegation is because none of the other clubs were going to submit themselves for that kind of forensic audit and their argument was that if they do it everyone else should do it which I actually think is a pretty fair argument and it's probably something we discussed on the members pod that maybe it's not just Saracens that need to have their, their accounts looked at if you're going to operate within a salary cap then everyone needs to do that as well so there's loads to come out of it and, and again can't wait to see the actual report even though it's going to be 103 pages long and you'd imagine parts of it will be redacted or whatever but this just gives us another little drip of information and we still don't have the full picture yeah Sarri's chairman Neil Golding said yesterday we carefully considered the option of a full investigatory audit however that inevitably would have involved a long period of more financial and emotional strain and this in turn meant that this was not a viable option for us. The waters are certainly muddied, as Murray says. Bernard, um, how black or white is it for you, is, or is it very much grey? Was it grey even before the report came out, uh, to your mind? Because we haven't really heard from you on Yeah, it. no, I, I, I think it's grey. Listen, listen, they cheated. Um, and I think that the fine and, the, and the, the deduction of points they got was pretty severe. And I think in fairness to Saracens, they didn't try and appeal that, they just accepted it and rid, pretty much rid off the chances of, of you know, doing anything this year, probably qualifying for Europe and, and just got on with the job of trying to stay up. And um, and they tried to, they were doing everything in their power to try and get back under salary cap for, for this season. Um, but anecdotally, my information is that a lot of the other premiership clubs weren't really interested in <laughs> taking any Saracens players um, in the short term, which uh, which basically meant their market was was pretty difficult. Um, you know, uh, French teams with World Cup jokers and uh, you know being in, being in, allowed this year because it's a World Cup. A lot of French clubs are full. They're relying on a medical joker to be able to to release players. So it was very hard once they were deemed to have broken the cap for this season to actually get back in in line before June. And I, I just felt that the fine, you know. Was it five point six million uh, pounds or um, thirty five points? Um, I mean, it's it, it was one of the severest punishments across any professional sport ever for a team for for, for breaking a rule. Um, and I, I just feel that from Saracens' point of view, I feel the Premiership Rugby are not exactly neutral in this. I mean, they've got uh, twelve stakeholders, eleven others, um, who's in it's in their best interest that Saracens fail and Saracens get relegated. So you can imagine what's you know, London Irish, Worcester, uh, Bath this season, you know, Bristol aren't too far away, um, Leicester, you know, they have been given a, a stay of reprieve because Saracens were coming. Saracens were going to stay up despite starting 20 or 25 points down. And now they've been given, you know, five or six months to get their house in order and, and, and plan for the future. So I think 
there would have been a lot of internal pressure on, on Premiership Rugby to make this decision, which doesn't mean it's the right decision. You know, I just think the fine was very severe, the deduction was very severe, and now to be relegated is incredibly severe when, from what we understand, they were doing everything in their power. They were willing to pay the fine, have the, have the deduction, and do everything in their power to get themselves back on track. And again, you know, it's if you if you look into it from a Saracen's point of view, and I'm not here to, uh, to fight their case or whatever, but they had legal advice that the payments they were making to players um, didn't... Didn't uh, fell in within the rules of the cap. Okay, now the obviously Premiership Rugby's legal team have decided that's not the case, but it's not clear cut. There's I was reading an article the weekend in, in the currency around uh, you know an Irish businessman who who's fighting with the revenue at the moment about you know whether spending X amount of days in Malta is is a genuine enough reason to have his pension fund there. You know, there's tax laws and, and business and sports, um, their laws be, you know, varying points of, of view and sometimes, you know, Saris's legal team could have been right and you know, they might have got in. The valuation of Maritoje, for example, and you hear you see so much speculation. I mean that, you know, online today it says Maritoje never went to that or didn't do any appearances to earn his his ninety thousand from uh, Nigel Ray's daughter, uh, but yet if you go on their Instagram page, he's he's had plenty of of gigs. So people want to just, I suppose, throw Saracens under the bus and ridicule everything they've done, and uh, for sure they've they've made mistakes. But my question would be, you know, how much is is enough, uh, and how how much do you want to destroy them, uh, and what is right, and also is is this is there any neutrality in this? Because as I said, the other stakeholders whether they're fighting off, whether they're afraid of allegation or whether they see Saracen's star players as being now attainable to them. Um, you know, they've got an agenda in, in this and I, I just feel it's probably it's probably too much. The relegation is, is too much, considering the fact that they, they haven't said we're not trying to fix this, you know, um, and you do need time to fix it. It's impossible. Uh, the same situation in Grenoble, um, from a different point of view, but, uh, you know, we our, our sugar daddy passed away Suddenly, we were three million down in terms of revenue for the following season, but we had a full book of contracted players and staff. And despite selling two players, and despite you know trying to do everything we could to to loan out players, etc., there was no way we could get back. Now, not on the salary cap, we were miles up salary cap, but no way we could get back in terms of being a break even. Um, because, but obviously, for the year after, we had loads of opportunities because you just don't recontract players. Um, so I, I feel for Saracens in the, from that point of view, in that it was going to be incredibly difficult to rectify it in season for this year. And, um, you know, realistically, if relegation was going to be the the punishment, that should have been the punishment at the start and not give them false hope of chasing, you know, a 35-point deficit and uh, paying the fine. And, and I just think for, I feel for their players, to be honest, and their coaching staff, etc., because it must be an emotion, emotional roller coaster. Um, and it's still, not, it's still not fixed, you know. It, it's still hanging out there. And also, all the people who say, um, they're not willing to show us the books. I mean, they're basically giving those books to 12 other Premiership play, uh, clubs, right? Regardless of, you know, we've, we've even seen leaks in, in Sky last night from, from, and they haven't disclosed everything, right? Uh, so if you're if you're a club who look after your employees and whatever you throw at Saracens, they've done that, you know, not just the financial benefits, but they do look after people, they help them prepare for, for life after rugby. I actually think it's an honourable thing not to want everybody's salaries to be out there for the press to get a hold of them, um, for the other clubs to get a hold of them, because you know if they break up, um, you want that player to have a, you know, to have I suppose, or just say, um, the same crack at, at renegotiating a contract somewhere else as as someone moving club, and I just don't think that they could have guaranteed that. So um, I can understand why they didn't want 
you know, the books to be thrown open to everybody when the other clubs weren't doing it. Because, you know, I'm sure Saracens feel um, they're not the only ones, you know, breaking the, the salary cap. And, like, also, let's be honest. I mean, when they go to sign a player, you know, they're not the only show in town. They're competing with other clubs. So, you know, there's some smart people involved there. They're not paying massively over the market rate for every player. You know, they, and I, and actually, in fact, some players you, uh, anecdotally here are willing to go to Saracens for the same money or less money because of the chance of winning trophies, because of the uh, the whole atmosphere and culture there, and how they look after players post playing. So, you know, it, it, like they haven't just gone out and thrown ch- money at everything. I mean, some pl- they've gone for players they haven't been able to get because other clubs have have paid as much or, or more. So, uh, I think an interest, an audit of all clubs would be very interesting, but. You know, the turkeys don't fall for Christmas, and 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 you know the uh, the other clubs aren't going to sign up for that unless they're actually led down that path by Premier Rugby, who represent the twelve stakeholders, and they're always going to back eleven over one. That yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, there's loads of interesting points in that one I want to come back to that you mentioned is Saracens, like they they got legal advice to say we can go ahead and do this. So someone has told them because like Nigel Ray is not an idiot; he's a very successful businessman. As are many other involved in the club, they were told they can go ahead and do that. You made the point off air, Gav. I mean, the ones they really need to get the go ahead off are, are, are Premiership Rugby mm. and the other clubs, and, and confirm with them. It seems incredibly naive for someone like Nigel Ray, who is that successful, to to think that he can sign up for the regulations and rules of PRL and then try to do something that's outside those, but not okay with them. Yeah, but like, if you wanted, if Nigel Ray wanted to hide this. Do you not think you could have hit it better? I mean, we hear about how how Premier Rugby used Harlequin's information. Harlequin's went off and looked up the company's register in London, saw Billy Bunapola and the Bunapola brothers with Nigel Ray, saw other investments. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to. I, I would question whether if Nigel Ray was afraid of this, he would be so transparent. You know, I, I, people say, "Oh, it'd not be transparent," but like once you sign, once you divert money into a company. It's there to be seen and found, particularly yeah. if the if the company name is Vunapola <laughs> Properties Limited. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not kind of seen. Like there's ways people like Nigel Ray can get money to people in a much uh, more suppose, underhanded way. Yeah, more underhanded way through offshore accounts, etc. So, like, let's let's look at that as well and say, okay, Nigel Ray, he's no one's fool. If he's going to go down that road, he obviously felt that, and the legal advice and the, and and the financial advice and it's PwC here for for example, you know that that that. Um, valued Mario Toja he's not it's not uh, just some you know backstreet accountancy firm and, and you pay your fees to these companies and you like to you know you, you hope then that they're giving you sound advice yeah, and but- in fairness like he lost his case but um, you know and then but you know who's to say he didn't believe he'd win it no I'm, I, sure, I, I'm I, sure he believed he'd, he'd win it and I'm sure when he got the legal advice yeah. that he took it as being sound but what I would argue is that it was naive to trust legal advice in a situation that isn't so much legal. Like the salary cap and all of the associated rules are essentially made up. Like we're not talking about criminal law. We're talking about a set of rules within a sport. So like legal advice, like yeah, lawyers looking at things and saying like, yeah, you should be fine. Who not Like ultimately the rules are made up by your rivals. You know what I mean? So like to trust a completely external source to me, was incredibly naive. Yeah, but who? Why not just check? Do you know, why not just like th- that's what I can't yeah. understand. Why not just make sure that this is not going to result in 
say a points deduction or, yeah. or whatever obviously they have a ma- massive issue with the salary cap and they have for years they've been on the record with that and uh, like essentially behind all this what they're actually doing with the players uh, I think is is good because they're supporting guys who are it's a horrific job being a professional player you're battering your body you're obviously taking your health in, into you know, you know you're putting it on the line every weekend and setting them up better for life afterwards is a good thing I think rugby players are probably underpaid for the, the things they do um, in that short career frame but they, they'd signed up to the regulations, they'd agreed to the salary cap, and then for them not to make sure that this was above the board with the rest of the league just seems crazy to well, me. Well, listen, I, 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 you know, I sound like a, I'm, I'm completely on Saracen's side here. I actually, I'm not at all. They have yeah. got caught. They have been punished. Right? I just felt that the initial punishment was enough, given the fact that they weren't going to be, they, they weren't going to be able to rectify it within this season and I think they gave them, they gave them false hope potentially you know when they announced the, the initial fine um, and that's 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 my big argument on it is that mm. if they were if their if their failures and their their crime was bad enough um, to be relegated you know back two months ago and automatic relegation um, they would have known where they stood they could have then said okay lads we're going to break up in, in May let's go all out for the European Cup don't forget their very first game against Racing they effectively threw the match with their selection because at that stage, Mark McCall was thinking, right, priority number one is get enough points to stay up. So that's my, my, my argument isn't that Saracens are wrong. My argument is that it's not black and white. And I don't agree with with how the the disciplinary matter has, 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 has played out. That's my issue. And I feel that something's happened over the course of pressure's been put on Premier Rugby over the course of the last two or three months um, to make a clean decision and get them relegated, which the stakeholders of Premiership Rugby will benefit from. And that's my that's my big argument. Um, at least with ERC, you know, you've got different stakeholders who aren't all on the same agenda. So you have the Welsh, Scottish, Italian, um, Irish and English. So, I, you know, there's not one one country or, or one competition can't railroad a decision on that as easily. And again, you know, we even hear that the, the, the chairman of the, whoever, whoever was, was in charge of running the investigation didn't recommend relegation. Hmm. You know, he felt it was too strong. That's that's where I'm coming they, from. They, I mean, they they there were suggestions of a seventy point deduction, and they felt even at the time that that was too yes. severe in so, one season. Exactly. Yeah. Because and you are in effect then condemning them to relegation, maybe. You know, so like, so that makes sense. But like, if you feel the seventy points were too severe, then why a couple of months later, as you say, are they yeah. essentially offered relegation as a? To as play an devil's advocate here because they've just racked up points. Yeah, they've racked up points, racked up points, and now clubs are going. So when they docked them thirty five points. You know, you can be pretty sure that every other club felt, you know, we're safe. You know, they're going, they did the mathematics. And I know, obviously, historically, they've done it, but you would look at the squad, injuries, World Cup year, fighting on two fronts. Um, they're going to lose a lot of players in February, March to England. Uh, it was nearly impossible to say that they could, because they also, don't forget, they didn't get a great start, you know, because they lost a lot of players to England. And uh, so London Irish, for example, looked to be out of touch. But, you know, you look at the, the league table today, they weren't out of touch. You know, Leicester weren't out of touch. And uh, I think that could be... That's, again, maybe influences my decision. Maybe it's a conspiracy theories, theory. But I feel I feel that the, the disciplinary process has been handled incredibly badly. Again, I'm not saying yeah. Zarrison didn't cheat. I can understand, you know, why they potentially thought he could get away with it. And that was wrong. But the punishment, I I, I feel, was is incredibly harsh. No one comes out of it well. That's no. No. definitely agree on that. And if we're saying about Saracens not adhering to the regulations, it feels like the whole investigation hasn't either. That relegation wasn't supposed to be part of this. Yeah. And, and now it suddenly is. It, it is farcical that it has come to this and sort of 
like the as you say that they were given the uh extended like some semblance of hope that they could salvage their season and then they just have to tear the whole thing up again and obviously there are um you know people's livelihoods at stake not just the players but as we touched upon in the members podcast on monday murray like just all of the people behind the scenes there like from you know groundsmen and people working in canteens and all of these kind of things like of course loads of jobs are going to be affected because the club is going to be completely different next year if the disciplinary process was a joke like it makes a joke of the league now as well mm. as we, we also don't know we don't know if saracens are over this season we don't have any sense that there's been Varying reports. I know Brendan Venter was on the Rugby Pod, um, and he was on BBC's po- podcast as well, defending that they probably weren't too far over. Yeah, All the reports the, say they're two million over. Yeah, exactly. But he's he's adamant, and he has spoke to people. He's highly he's involved from the outside. I mean, he's he's, he's a big part of what they've grown. So he is adamant that they're not far off this year. Certainly not the two million, and because of some of the injuries they've had, they might have actually came came back under. Um, by the end of the year, but the the big issue they had, uh, he said they had was was complete opening their books to the other, to the to the Premiership Rugby and the other clubs when no one else is going to do it. Um, now, in fairness, I think the, their chairman or the new CEOs came out the last night and said in, in a letter to the fans that you know they are they, ne- they were never asked to open the books. He said, and and they will you know they will have full disclosure now, I suppose, because the, as far as they're concerned, the matter is dead, and they're not giving away. I suppose um, any competitive advantage. I, I, I'm sure they're going to be. I think the big issue for them is that uh, that confidentiality for their players and staff. You know, you don't want your you don't want your salaries. And I, I know lots of people want to know what every Saracen player is, is making because uh, it's interesting. But if you're that player and, and and your your employee throws that information out, you know you're not going to be happy about it. And and um, and that's you know that's already started to happen. Um, but again, you know, I, and I don't actually think that there should be. That the books of every club, I think the books of every club should be thrown open to, you know, a set of auditors, but not to the general public. You know, I just don't think that information um, is is public property, to be honest. The uh, credibility of this league season now is kind of not even in jeopardy. Like the season will be completely impacted by this. Everything that happens subsequently, everything that has happened to this point, and Murray and I were chatting on Monday as well on the members' pod, like. Like, you know, Saracens even, I don't know, like, uh, the, the the fact that the relegation situation is just sorted now. The yeah. people that were calling for a uh, lack of relegation, the Premiership will get their wish and see how it plays out. But it just, it takes so much of the, uh, I don't know, some of the twists and turns that could have come in the season are gone. It was uh, going to be a phenomenal season because, I mean, you look at some of the clubs. That, uh, London Irish, obviously, were down there. Worcester, you know, Leicester, Bath. And then Saracens coming you know, from behind, it would have been a phenomenal end of season. But yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna throw up a lot of dead rubbers now. Um, and I, 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 yeah, again, you know, even if you win it, you know, if Exeter win it this year, is it the same? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I would, you know, obviously Exeter beat Saracens in a final, uh, but obviously lost a couple. But uh, I just think the whole season is is a bit of a joke in Premiership rugby. But you know, from Leinster's point of view and Irish rugby's point of view, I mean. What a horrible draw to get of getting Saracens. <laughs> you know, obviously we have them at home, um, but it's the worst draw you could get, I think. Because obviously now they're, and I know that group of players, uh, and if you look at what their whole kind of um, raison d'etre has been, has been, you know, make memories. I mean, what a memory to win a European Cup before you all break up and, you know, um, everyone goes their separate ways, given how tight they are. And now they only have one agenda, you know. 
bar the lads going to play Six Nations but realistically and I think it would have been very hard to judge them on on Sunday's game against Racing because I think you know even though they did an incredible job to get a win um, with 14 men etc I actually think it can be much better than that I think that emotionally and mentally they must have been spent I mean given that news broke Friday um, I think it's you know it's it's a testament to them Billy Vinopolo going off with a broken arm you know playing for 40, 40 minutes with, with 14 and Racing are a good side uh, it's testament to them that they won that and qualified and I think by the time the quarter final comes around they could be you know in a, in a totally different place it's a schools rugby type scenario for them now yeah. it's you know we, we're gone in the summer like so let's enjoy it and let's try and, and win the cup mm-hmm. and um, you know it's kind of Friday Night Lights-esque uh, and it's kind of like you say they're burning what a, a rotten draw for Leinster. They did everything right in the pool as well, you know. Yeah. And uh, the their reward, reward for being the top <laughs> yeah. seed is getting a repeat of last year's final, which they lost. The worst reward you can get. It'll be interesting with the other Premiership clubs as well, how it changes their kind of plan for the season. You go from fighting relegation yeah. now to, I guess, building for the future a couple of months, yeah, five months early. It could be good for Eddie Jones because um, English players, English clubs get revenue based on their percentage of. EQP, which is English qualified players. If you've got nothing to lose, you'll you'll just start pumping as mm. many of those into your matchday squads to get your average up, which gives you more cash, which next year goes into your um, to your budget, so and helps you recruit. So, uh, but it, you, you might find two or three players, and Eddie Jones loves a loves a wild card, might just get you know six or seven more games now mm. than they would have if there was a relegation battle, and and, and will definitely add to his depth chart. It's bad news for Irish rugby, so. Bad news for Irish rugby. We need to talk about Irish rugby. Uh, so, as you said, Murray, you were in London yesterday. Um, just give us a, like a lot of the things that were said are embargoed till the weekend, probably. Are they? Um, yeah, there's stuff up today from from Andy Farrell and Johnny Sexton. I, I guess his the kind of tone he set was he wants his team to progress. Spoke about the attack a lot, developing that side of the game. He he understands it'll take time. He called Mike Cat a kind of ideas man, um, and Johnny Sexton actually was talking about when Cat had called over to his house soon after he arrived into the job in Ireland uh, Johnny had said to his wife I'm going to have a quick chat here for 20 minutes with with Mike Cat the new attack coach and two hours later his wife texts him and said dinner's ready tell Mike to leave (laughs) (laughs) so that gives a sense of how enthusiastic he is about it how many ideas he has and there's definitely that renewal of of energy in the Ireland camp Johnny Sexton did admit though that he still has those sleepless nights thinking about what went wrong at the World Cup but Farrell himself keen to move on uh, and now he's going to put his own stamp on the team. It will take time. We mentioned earlier on, he doesn't have a lot of actual training sessions to implement new things. So it'll be a, a gradual process. But at the end of it, the, the bottom line is that he said winning matters to us and, and we'll never shy away from that. You know, the, the prize money for Six Nations is important to RFU. The seeding is important because at the end of the year, you're looking towards World Cup pools already for the next time around. And oh, you don't end up sake. in a situation where you're Wales, Australia and England in one pool, except one of those teams is Ireland. So you've got to get results. People probably forget about that. You think, OK, this is actually a bit of a transition year, but he knows he needs to win and, and so do the players. So, yeah, you've got all that wrapped up. You're, you're trying to develop a team. You're trying to put your own stamp on it. Um, and try and bet in some of those new faces, those those uncapped five players and a couple of guys returning, having not been involved. Again, interestingly enough, Johnny Sexton, who obviously has to defend his position as a senior player, said Tess Roby is very different. The, the guys are going to realise that quickly. Um, and Andy Farrell was kind of intimating at the same. So there's lots tied up in it, but it it did feel quite exciting to, to get that new voice and that new energy through the group. What are you looking for, Bernard, in just over a week's time? I think Ireland will have a really good Six Nations, to be honest. I think um, uh, I think 
players have bounced back to form. I think you know he's got a quality squad to um, to pick from. I think the change will uh, will definitely energize them, and, and and that's that's not the criticism of Joe. It's just uh, you know new way of doing things. Obviously, a couple of new coaches thrown in there. Um, some new players come, or I'd like to think will come in, and uh, you know more competition, uh, and everyone's been on their toes a little bit. And I think you know we've enough good players in, in this in this country um, to have a really good Six Nations. Particularly when you look at we've got three games at home. If you look at the French squad, it's incredibly experimental, and and you can understand why Galtier um, is going down that road with a home World Cup, and and uh, so I think we can beat France in in Paris. You know. Looking at two squads, Ireland are better than them, uh, and it's only really England. And and you don't know what Eddie's going to do. And you know, the, the even like Steve Bortwick, skills coach, and um, just ch- chopping and changing a little bit. Some of his selections, he's no, no he's no obvious number eight in there. Um, so yeah, like we could. Uh, we, and Wales are obviously in transition to a certain extent with with no Sean Edwards, no Gats, no McBride, no Howley. Um, there might be a little bedding bedding in process with them uh, there's some injuries you know they're not, there's no, no, very unclear who can play 13 for them in the first couple of rounds so um, I think we could have a, a really good World Cup and, I, and, I, and with, as Murray mentioned you know they might not have the prep time over the, for the Scotland game to really revolutionise how we want to play but um, you know Mike Cath no matter who you speak to said he's a um, he's a guy who gives players a licence to play um, and you know we can see we can see in Munster for example that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work straight away in terms of your attack. It does take time. Uh, but I think even that license and that freedom potentially will energise the players. But I think it'll be it'll be evolution rather than revolution. I think it'll be next, this time November series where you really see, um, you know, a, 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 a big transformation in how we want to play. But it's exciting, yeah. I think, you know, I, I pretty much got over the World Cup now. I'm looking forward to, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Six Nations as well. You're sleeping again, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that bad for me, but uh, no, yeah, I just think it's done. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's build a team uh, and uh, have a, have a brilliant Six Nations. And I think we have a chance to potentially win this. You know? If the likes of Sexton are still, even subconsciously, thinking of the World Cup or just, you would be impacted by it. It's not that long ago, even if we can move on as journalists and fans. Um, like how much then does Farrell have to change uh, the environment from a coaching standpoint just to give it that sense of it being a fresh start when you're in the camp? Because for you know there, there are potentially five new caps, etc. But it is still roughly uh, the same squad or a very similar squad to the one that would have been in Japan. Like, does he need to uh, revolutionise the the sort of squad dynamic in any way? Like, if he's not so much doing it on the pitch? Yeah, well, I think. You already see it. Like um, the stock take was was one day. You know, short and sharp. You know, giving players three or four days rest post Champions Cup, and then they go to Portugal rather than being in Carton House for for two weeks. Now, there's nothing wrong with being Carton House for two weeks, but if <laughs> if if that's been kind of the the journey, and because Joe had a long tenure, um, you know, uh, which was great and it gave us consistency. You know, more unfortunately, the problem with that is there's, there's familiarity to the planning. You know, to the to the build up to games, to training camps, etc. So I suppose it'll just be that'll be a, a change in itself. You know, getting down to Portugal for some more of our training, then come back. They also have a new you know training center, which is state of the art, and again that's fresh. And um, so I think he'll he'll be very conscious of of making it, I suppose, mentally stimulating as much as the change in in style of play. Uh, yeah, I, I think that will that will. Get the lads fresh, and I think you know new blood is Cooney going to start? Is Keller going to start? One or two, you know, fresh faces. 
um, and what they bring will also energise the, the older, more experienced players as well. It's going to be really interesting to hear about how he is as a coach and, and if he changes, because obviously he's all, been all hands-on so far, always been an assistant coach, defence coach. Now he's the boss. Is he on the training pitch running everything? Does he give a little bit more... I guess, independence to his assistant coach, which maybe they didn't always have under Joe Schmidt, who, who liked to have fingers in all pies and, and had a great knowledge across yeah. the board as well. Farrell, obviously, excellent technical coach d- defensively and ha- has a really strong understanding of that game, but we don't know about what he's like with it with an attack, really. I, I know he did a bit of that with England, but going to be really interesting to hear about that from, from players, maybe as it, as it kind of filters out and, and also how they analyse games and whether it's as severe. Yeah, and I, I think um, a worrying... Uh, I suppose um, lack of an appointment for me is no team manager, you know. So if you're if you're um, Andy Farrell, and unfortunately, well, historically the head coach of the national team has got dragged into provincial politics, yeah. And um, you know, and 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 you know, there's there's debate around whether Joe actually was involved in in, in some of that stuff. But um, you know, I, I think there's no they haven't replaced uh, the team manager, which. Potentially will you know drag um, Andy away from from rugby matters more, and like you know, this job that that job would be you know head coach of the national team would be incredibly um, intense and and uh, time consuming. Apart, and that's without even the rugby, you know what I mean. So I, I just think, and obviously maybe he has someone in mind, or maybe he's waiting for the right guy to come in. But I think it'd be great for him to have a buffer, someone who can you know deal with a lot of the the political issues. Um, and give him some breathing space just to look after the, the team and coaching staff. And listen, this is completely outside. Maybe he feels he has it under control. Um, but it's just interesting, um, you know, Alan Phillips, who's the, the next Lions manager, you know, was a key man for Warren Gatland for, for all his time in Wales. And I, I got to know him. And, um, you know, for the player's point of view, he was just someone you could go to and, and, and get a couple of extra tickets or it sounds stupid or you know an extra night in the hotel or just those little things that I know that Ireland, Ireland would have a logistics person but it's probably a, a more senior role than that um, who can maybe you know maybe just give you some advice at times and, and say look at you know we're, we're you know the relationship with the media has gone a little bit sour what can we do to, to address it or um, you know we're getting this feedback from, from referees are we dealing with you know not necessarily a rugby man uh, like sorry a rugby coach but just someone of stature who can, as I said, be that sounding board and be that protector uh, to allow Andy Farrell do what he does, which is lead people and, and coach. Mm. But if you're getting dragged into other issues um, constantly, that can affect, and then you sub you sub uh, subcontract the work, and it's not as uh, as impactful. So that's just something that, from the outside looking in, I I I'd wonder. You know, does he need more help there? But as I said, it's his show and he'll run as he sees. Yeah. Well, the intimation from David Nussifora, certainly before Christmas, was that they weren't going to replace Paul Dean, who left that role, that essentially they were having a look at what the role actually entailed. Now, that might change. And, and I, I would imagine Andy Farrell might need that bit of help. And I, get, I think that was the thing with Joe. From, from what I understand, he was heavily involved in all aspects, almost like a, a performance director yeah. like David Nussifora's role actually is. So maybe that's up, up to Nussifora to really be on top of all of that all the contracting all the player movement handling that side of it and, and the head coach not getting involved as, as Joe Schmidt from what we hear tended to do yeah just to clarify it's not a logistics position like they were, they were yeah. well looked after in terms of logistics it's completely not that but it's just that someone someone who's got stature seniority at IRFU level who could potentially you know have those big conversations with CEOs of the provinces or, or the head coaches of the provinces and just protect 
the national head coach from because look, let's, let's be honest. Even if Andy stays away from it, and there's a discussion with uh, Max Deegan, for example, you know, you should go to Munster or Connacht. You know, the player will always want the head coach's opinion, or you know, it's very hard to stay neutral in that. Yeah. I think if you, it, it's easier maybe if you have someone in between you who can just, you know, be that sounding board and you never have to really nail your colours to the mask or or get involved in actually choosing one province over the other, which unfortunately, Irish rugby's got unbelievable strengths, but that can be potentially the weakness is that it's so parochial and everyone's so consumed with their own province winning, which I, I don't absolutely believe in 100%, but it just means the national coach, I think, can get dragged into decisions and, and, and conversations that he doesn't really get anything out of. Max Deegan on the move. You heard it here first. Hashtag Bernard Sources. Hypothetical. I know. Well, uh, speaking of Max Deegan and some of those players, then um, we'll ask you to, to sort of name your team. Like I, I want to do it, Murray and I were chatting earlier, uh, from your own perspective personally, Bernard, as to how you would line Ireland out against Scotland more so than what you think yeah. Farrell will do. But we'll throw you a couple of those questions as well. Maybe start with the backs. And obviously, Jordan Larmer's fitness is a little bit up in the air. But Murray and I were even talking on Monday about how uh, Will Addison is, is very much nearly on par with Larmer, I would have thought, um, in the pecking order there. Say if, uh, in an ideal world, if they were both fit, is it Larmer who starts for no, you just about? I'd no? go Addison 100%. Yeah, yeah, I I think um, I think he's probably more of an all-round footballer at the moment and more comfortable at fullback. Um, and that's I think Jordan's going to be a, he already is a phenomenal player, but I think he's going to be a, a brilliant international international player. But um, you know I think we need to be careful we don't get carried away by you know beating nine defenders in a run against Northampton uh, and look at over the course of, of each game so far this season, um, how influential they have been about bringing other people into the game as well. And, and I just, I've seen a few Ulster games live and Addison has been, you know, head and shoulders the best player in the pitch for me. And I was talking with McCluskey and, and, and Cooney and, and, and Kutsi and they've been brilliant, but Addison has this ability to play as that second you know, first receiver, make really good decisions. His work in the backfield is very good. His kicking game is good. His high ball work is good. So, I, I I would I would pick Addison as a fifteen, you know, above Larmer at the moment. That's a call. Yeah, bombshell straight off the off the bat. Yeah, I, I don't think it, even if they were both fully fit, I don't think it would be a, a a massive shock call really because Addison's been so good. I, I think Jordan Larmer has been excellent. I think he's worked yeah. hard on all the other areas of the game. You can see him trying to get in there. It's not as fluid for him when he's first. No. First receiver, he's he's not as comfortable in that because he hasn't done it a lot. But Leinster clearly pushing him, and as you say, he's a young guy. I do think his ability to, to beat defenders is, is something to really consider as well. And Addison can do that, I know, in maybe a different more kind of gliding style. Yeah. He's got good feet as well. It's a, it's a nice headache to have. And I'd say now with Larmer's injury, um, Andy Farrell didn't sound very certain on it yesterday. It looks like Addison is, is probably going to be wearing that 15 jersey. It'll be a great opportunity for him. On the wings then, how do you see it unfolding? Um, I think Stockdale, given the benefit of the doubt, uh, I'd be looking for a replacement for Erzy. I don't think he's been on form. Um, whether that's Larmer or um, whoever I, I just think Erdy's been a, a bit off um, since the World Cup and, and if you're going to pick someone on form um, and, and put pressure on him to get back to form I know he was injured he didn't play the weekend against the Ospreys but um, uh, yeah I, I'm not sure I, I'd probably if Jordan was fit I'd play him in the wing to be honest mm. yeah. put him on I the wouldn't right necessarily go for Dave Kearney even though it's a big push to, to, 
to pick him. Um, I'd, I'd rather have a back three of, of Stockdale, Addison, and Larmer. Um, Conway's the or other Conway. one. Yeah. Or Conway. But yeah, that'd be, that'd be, my, that'd be my pecking order. You know, um, I think Conway's been excellent. And uh, yeah, he, he deserved a crack at it. You think Wales has been okay, like based on what we were saying last week? Yeah, right. he had a bad game away to Ulster, I thought. Uh, that was really unlike him. He didn't look de- like he was there mentally, which is very unlike him. He's he's usually brilliant on, on the mental skills side of it. I think he hasn't probably got a lot of attacking opportunity with Munster because they're still betting in that, that style of play. And when he's got it, he's often had a defender on top of him. I think he's done pretty well in those limited opportunities. He, you know, he he's athletically looked okay. Unfortunately, he got that knee flaring up again before the, the Australia's match. So that is a bit of concern because that was obviously dogging um it was kind of ruining his World Cup at, at times. Um, I think, yeah, I think he's been okay. I don't think he's been at his very best, but I, I don't think he's been particularly bad either. Um, and I think that Farah will consider just, if you are making a few changes to the spine, maybe a bit more of a settled team around that. Um, and I think Stockdale has come back into form, so he's going to be on the left wing. Big left boot as well helps. Um, I just think Earls might edge it, yeah. Okay. In the middle then, more dilemmas, the right types of dilemmas. Um and again, we were speaking about this with Gary Doyle in the podcast last week, just how he thought, uh, how he kind of foresaw Farrell choosing the team. Which way would you go, Bernard? Is it uh, the Leinster midfield pairing or do you bring Aki in there at 12 or even 13? Um, yeah, well, Gary 13 for sure. It's just who plays who plays 12. Um, and yeah, I'd, probably, I'd probably go with a partnership, to be honest, and go with, with Henshaw. Um, with you know, Bundy, Bundy, it'd be very tight, but I, I'd probably, because um, you know, you're going to go Sexton, Henshaw, I, I, I go Sexton, Henshaw, Ring Rose, so you just get that, you know, continuity from, from provincial into, um, into the national side, and um, I think Robbie, Robbie's under, Robbie has under pressure to perform, but, um, you know, he had a, he have to write off his World Cup because of the injury really, and uh, I, I think Robbie's got a kicking game, um, that, one he doesn't have obviously uh, and I would go for the, the two Leinster players Fair yeah enough. I'd be on the same line although Bundy Aki's game against Montpellier yeah. was exceptional I He's... think you're sleeping on Bundy to be honest <laughs> yeah people have short memories like Bundy was absolutely tearing it up last yeah. autumn and, and yeah. ahead of the World Cup yeah I mean I, I can see them rotating as well but yeah. if it's personal opinion I'd, I'd probably go ahead and show him really yeah well. and, and to be fair um, I think it was Andy Dunn made the point a couple of weeks ago on the pod like ideally we're not sort of cementing a team for the entire Six Nations here like ideally you could see guys just coming in for a second game like say if Murray starts against Scotland that Cooney might start the, the following week yeah. that kind of yeah. thing uh, Sexton for you at 10 I think everybody would be in agreement there Scrum Half is another big shout Bernard um, Cooney yeah I'd go Cooney yeah, yeah and I thought Murray and I got criticised for praising Murray on News Talk there seems to be a big backlash against against Murray but uh, I, I covered the game at the weekend and I thought he was sharper now it wasn't perfect some of his kicks um, went were, were too far in field but I just thought his his uh, tread around the breakdown when there was an opportunity to go he went quickly and um, and I thought he was putting much more zip on, on his passing and getting the ball to um, to the, the attacking player a lot quicker than he had been so I saw I suppose a bit of a spike in his performance levels but I think you just got to give Cooney you know if, he, if you have the season he's having and you, and you don't get a crack I think it sends the wrong message um, you know elsewhere and uh I'd like to see him get his opportunity, to be honest. And and let and again, it's not saying that he's going to be he's the main man, but give him a start and and, and see what Connor's off the bench and and maybe rotate the week after. But um, give him a crack. 
Yeah, I didn't realize the 42 commenters were texting at the news talk as well. I <laughs> feel, feel betrayed. Uh, let's move on to the forwards then before we wrap. So we'll start with the front row and do it the way we do our team sheets. Um, with Killer. Kelleher being fit, yeah. <laughs> you answered my I, question there. No, I'd start... Um, I'd start Kilcoyne. Oh, Killer, sorry. Yeah, I thought I'd you said Kelleher. and Kelleher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just think... And that's not... Keen, Keen Healy's form has been good. But I think Kilcoyne has been exceptional. And he's been pigeonholed as just an impact player off the bench. And he's done a great job off the bench for Ireland. But I would actually give him a start and, and you know reward him with that. And I'd put Kelleher beside him. Uh, uh, although Herring... Obviously, Herring's probably... the the most likely starter, I would imagine, with Keller on the bench. But, you know, I'd I, I, I trust Keller to um, to go in there and make a big impact. I'd probably go the other two, to be honest. Yeah. I think Healy's playing brilliant rugby. He looks fitter than ever. And I think Herring's been excellent. I know he's had a couple of line-out wobbles the last couple of weeks, but I think Keller off the bench for a debut makes more sense. If I was a coach, and I'm probably a conservative No, it does, make, it does make more sense. Like, And I think that's the way it'll go. But yeah. And again, I said... Um, I think Herring's been good. Um, uh, you know, re- unfortunately, Ulster's line has not just last week, last couple of weeks has been poor yeah. all season, um, and it's not just down to him. But uh, and Keller has, hasn't played a lot because he's been injured. So you know, I, I do think they will go with with Keane, and and Keane's been excellent as well. But I just think Killer has been outstanding, even the weekend against Ospreys. Um, and I just like to see him get a crack. Yeah, he's a freak, all right. Um, is there any argument to be made for? Porter over Furlong on form just to play devil's advocate or is Furlong one of those guys that you could say is nearly that like franchise player that will start most games yeah you'd think so Porter's definitely put more pressure than ever on yeah. he's adding lots of different elements he has the jackal threat that Tyke Furlong doesn't have he has different elements to it his scrummaging is a lot more solid he's giving away far far less penalties in that area as well so more pressure than ever but I think Farrell probably backs Furlong to, to respond to that pressure at lock then does Toner start? Upon his return? No. I think if James, Roy, if James Roy's fit, I'd go with himself and Henderson, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'd go the same way there as well. I think you backed that partnership, which is still pretty new. I mean, yeah. last year was only the first time they really got to launch it. Toner, obviously, back in featuring is, is excellent. He deserves to be in there. Uh, Alton Glan, interesting to see what part he plays, mm-hmm. potentially, if we're talking about ben, yeah. bench impact. He has that. He has that dynamism as well. But Henderson and Ryan, Henderson's still only 27. I know his consistency isn't at the very top level when he's playing test rugby but if you can get those two guys consistently delivering they can be really dominant yep 27 is young enough as well yet to establish that consistency at test level so we'll see how he goes back row then which is I think one of the major points of contention for both the 42 commenters and news talk texters alike <laughs> um, if there was a, a sort of concerted campaign to discredit Conor Murray I think Peter Romani very much falls into that same category albeit again like Murray um, hasn't been lighting the world on fire by any stretch of the imagination if we start with uh, number 8 firstly Bernard which way would you be leaning there personally um, I, I'm tempted to move CJ to 6 so that affects my decision yeah. around 8 and uh, it's not clear cut because they're, they're quite different players um, Doris and Deegan um, I think Doris is is more action packed and, and and consistent over over the course of the game. Uh, whereas I think Deegan's just got unbelievable ability, you know, and and he could be really special. And it was interesting that Leo played Doris six, um, you know, last week or last week and, and brought him on at six. And and he was asking the media afterwards, you know, about who's 
who's ahead of who. He said, oh, well, look, they're both finishing in the back row together. So uh, it's going to be hard to, to to manage that when Kona comes back, etc. But I would go with CJ at six, Van der Fleer at seven, and I would give Doris an opportunity at eight. I have to say I'm being incredibly impressed with Jack O'Donoghue. Yeah. Like, he he didn't get in the stock take group, and I just think he's just saw these two lads who he should be ahead of um, obviously get in, and I think he's responded in the best way possible, and he looks... He's in, he's really kicked on again, and he's he could be like realistically he should be ahead of him of Doris and Deegan. Doris and Deegan. And uh, the way he played last weekend against the Ospreys, he was he, like, he was outstanding. Um, I just wonder, you know, has he, has it happened a little bit too late for him uh, for this for this first game? Uh, but I think you know if you're looking for a, a really athletic, mobile, skillful back row, um, you know, your your Doris Deegan and Jack O'Donoghue gives you you know lineup options and gives you that. You know, similar profiles, really. To be honest, um, and you know, I don't see the three of them playing together, you know, very quickly. But uh, you know, you've got three guys who who really could become, you know, a key part of our back row. Just on the back row, and again, it's sort of fortune telling stuff. But do you see Farrell going the same way as yourself, potentially moving standard to six? There is a lot of clamor for that. Uh, Gary, for example, on the podcast last week, just <laughs> kind of batting down the hatches and reckons like, "Nah, Peter Peter Romani will start," like despite form. Yeah, I don't don't think Peter will start. Uh, um, I think that that's, that he's under pressure, um, and you know he hasn't been bad by any many means, but just I think there's too many players playing better at the moment, and uh, you know if you look at the World Cup and and you know those two really dynamic back flankers, um, you know really aggressive in defence, you know, really good ball carriers uh, that England had, for example. Um, you know, I think I think that's there's a big pressure now on your on your back row to be, you know, really effective both sides of the of the ball. And and uh, Peter's obviously brilliant line out and he's brilliant on the ground. Um but maybe his carry isn't great, you know, even the weekend, you know, getting pushed into touch a couple of times. Like he was on the once you're playing on the edge for some reason and he's not very effective there. Like it's a it's a killer for them. Um but obviously they're just putting their, their attacking strategy based on your number, you know, so six stays on the edge and um, that doesn't suit him and if Ireland are going to evolve a little bit, uh, I think he could be under pressure. That makes sense. We'll leave it there. So, gentlemen, thanks very much for your time, Murray and Birch. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. Uh, we'll be back next week. I think Tuesday is the day for the 42 members after the Ireland team is named and we've got loads more extra podcasts, members.the42.ie if you want to sign up there ahead of the Six Nations uh Murray and I will have our work cut out for us, I think, particularly <laughs> with that WhatsApp group. And uh, Bernard, we'll catch you very soon as well. And to everybody who listened, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, enjoy the weekend. And until next week, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 oh